You know, who's in charge is the, the same group that's always been in charge, and, and that's the schools. There's an enormous amount of misunderstanding about what the NCAA is. People speak of the NCAA as if, as if it's some monolithic entity, and as you know, Dana, it's, it's not. It's 1,100 schools that come together and make decisions in a collaborative, representative democracy. Those schools always have been in charge, and those schools will, will be in charge moving forward. And they collectively, with the help of us in the national office, have to make decisions in this new legal context. But we also have to help them determine what it is they want to ask from Congress. In fact, the national office and the NCA president have no authority other than that explicitly granted by the more than 1,000 member colleges and universities. This is a critical point. The NCA is not an all-powerful presence, and the NCA president is not the omnipotent czar of college sports. Rather, the NCA is an association made up of universities and colleges that acts only after considerable deliberation, reflects the majority will of the membership, and authorizes the national office to execute its decisions. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is Big amateurism.com. You can also check out my blog at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email and the address is rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is April 7th, twenty. 22, and we're going to do a little cleanup work on the backside of the Final Four. And what a crazy Final Four it was. You had uh, four Blue Bloods going at it, and you had this historic matchup between Duke and Carolina in uh, one side of the Final Four bracket. And much to my dismay, the Blue Devils didn't pull it out, but I have to tip my hat to the Tar Heels. They played a phenomenal game, and they made the plays when it mattered most. And then we had Kansas with a pretty easy victory over Villanova. And then on Monday, we had a really interesting game of some historic momentum swings and point differentials. And it was a very exciting game down the stretch. I'm not sure I would call it a well played game. But in the final analysis, you have Kansas as the national champions. And the irony of that is just almost difficult to wrap your head around, given that Kansas is currently under investigation by the NCAA for violations of its sacred principle of amateurism. And I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. But I want to set the table for this episode by explaining why I chose the title, the final four flotsam and jetsam. And flotsam and jetsam is a phrase that we've probably all heard. And I think it's common kind of street meaning is just trash, debris. But it actually has a specific meaning in maritime law. And flotsam is the debris that's left over after a shipwreck or an accident and legally belongs to the owner of the ship. Jetsam is the garbage that the uh, crew throws overboard intentionally to try to lighten the ship's load, particularly when it's in 
distress. And that garbage, the jetsam, is fair game. It's open season. And once that property goes overboard, the ship and the ship owner no longer have a legitimate legal claim to it. And I'm going to use that analogy to talk about some of the things that happened in connection with this Final Four and some things that the NCAA just threw overboard for uh, someone else to deal with. And then also some of the prize wreckage that it claims ownership to. And that includes primarily the treasure chest that is floating in the debris that is the March Madness contract, the billion-dollar-a-year gravy train that is the lifeblood, the sole lifeblood of the NCAA bureaucratic state. And at the very beginning of this podcast, I framed it around the analogy of a perfect storm. And I was talking about all the things that had come together really beginning in in 2019 and heading into the present that have uh, created an environment that is unlike any other in the history of college sports. And we're not out of the storm yet. There are still some choppy waters to be navigated here. And it's not clear what the timetable is, but there's a lot of pressure, a lot of it exerted by external regulatory threats that are really piling up and I think make a a rational path out of this mess more and more difficult for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. But in this analogy, you've got the captain of the NCAA ship, Mark Emmert, sitting behind the helm, and he's faced with a a choice. And I guess it's not just Emmert alone, also the governing boards. And now, of course, you have the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee that came into existence in connection with this constitutional makeover. And the Transformation Committee is chaired by Greg Sankey, and he's supposed to be the savior now, and he's supposed to be speaking a different language. And, you know, we'll we'll see if, if that's the case, but I'm just not sure that's what's happening here. We've had a power five power grab, power five football power grab, and we've had these you know national authority powers and regulatory functions being sent down to the divisions. And in division one, of course, that means the power five, and it means this transformation committee. And Emmert has essentially relinquished the helm, if not outright abandoned ship. And in that press conference last week on March 31st, He essentially said that. He went back to his safe place, which is to say, hey, don't look at me. I'm not the guy in charge. I'm just uh, the messenger. I'm just doing the will of the people. I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well, because that is simply not true. The NCAA president, in fact, has substantial authorities. And the tactic that Emmert used that I identified in that opening montage. That was Emmert speaking first. And that's what he said in response to Dana O'Neill's question about who the heck is in charge right now. And Emmert, his first instinct was to to go into deflection mode and to say, well, it's not me. And then he transitioned into this transformation committee and then to Congress. So in his mind, he has no responsibility or accountability. And that's part of the problem. It's been part of the problem all along. And you have this circular firing squad mentality. And even Greg Sankey now, I think, is starting to play that game. So he did an interview with Paul Feinbaum on his podcast on April 1st, the day after Emmert's uh, press conference. And uh, I thought Feinbaum asked some pretty good questions. And he was asking, what's going on in this transformation committee? Where are we headed? Who's in control? I also know that at the very beginning of the 
episode, Feinbaum just came out and said that Mark Emmert ha- needs to be fired. I don't know if he's said that before, but who, who knows? But I think people are finally saying out loud what they've been thinking for a long time, and that's that this guy just isn't the guy. If we're looking for leadership, this guy is not our guy. But Feinbaum was asking Sankey some important questions about the, where all this is headed. And Sankey, who was supposed to be the no BS guy, he's supposed to be the straight talk guy. The we're, I'm not going to deal in false narratives. I'm going to give it to you straight. Greg Sankey, he went back into the same strategies that you have heard from Mark Emmert and from NCAA executives and from their propagandists in, in the media and in Congress. Congress and from all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who have come out and actually testified in Congress since the beginning of 2020. All of that rhetoric, the rhetoric we heard from Bob Bowlesby in that Aspen Institute forum on uh, February 25th. And, you know, what I heard from Sankey, again, you have to really look carefully at what he actually said because he uses some of the same deflection techniques and the bob and weave techniques that all these spokespeople have used, people promoting NCAA Power 5 interests. But he's supposed to be the straight talk guy. But when you really look at what he said in that interview, he was just doing the same song and dance as all the other in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and very subtly incorporating in some of the same tired talking points and narratives. And on the backside of that interview, I don't think we have any better idea of what this transfer committee is actually doing than we did before that interview. And that's a problem because it suggests, to me at least, that this transformation committee may not have all the answers and we may not see transformative change in August. That's the the deadline that they've set for uh, remaking Division One, which is really remaking college sports. And that all runs through the Power Five because the Power Five is the business of big-time college sports. So Sankey is the guy, boy, what he said in that Feinbaum interview wasn't very encouraging. And we're back to that same fundamental problem that Condoleezza Rice identified on the backside of her work on the Commission on College Basketball. And that is that the in-system stakeholder decision makers and beneficiaries operate like a circular firing squad. Nobody is ever responsible. Nobody is ever accountable. And everybody's always pointing fingers. And that's precisely what Mark Emmert has been doing his entire tenure as the NCAA president. And that circular firing squad dynamic has been pretty effective for in-system stakeholder beneficiaries when they were operating in the old status quo, where they had complete control over the marketplace and the regulation of college sports pre-Austin, pre-NIL, pre-transfer, pre-federal antitrust litigation. They had everything they wanted, but they didn't want to be responsible for any of the problems in college sports. And they just kick the can down the road through this circular firing squad approach to the voluntary regulation of college sports. And I just don't see that changing right now. We're hearing the same garbage from from the same people. We have the same people who created this mess claiming that they are the only ones who can solve it. And it just doesn't seem like that's the direction that we're headed. So this is going to be a kitchen sink episode where I do a, a wrap up on all these things that popped up during the latter part of March Madness and in particular around the final four. And I just want to start with these opening montage quotes from Emmert and Brand. And look, Emmert's saying, hey, don't blame me. The real people who are in charge of college sports are the uh, 11 
100 member institutions. So they're really sitting in the captain's chair, not me. And that is misleading on so many levels. And Miles Brand used that same tactic. So Emmert was channeling Brand. And that Brand quote was from a 2003 Senate hearing. And Brand said, look, people just don't understand the leadership structure at the NCAA. And he said, I am not the omnipotent czar. And Emmert kind of used that same thing. Look, you guys just don't understand this leadership model. I'm not the guy. I'm just doing the will of the membership. And if you have a problem, you got to talk to 1,100 people to figure out what the people in charge really want. And he talked about it in terms of a representative democracy, but that's not what it is at all. It is run by a very small group of conflicted decision makers uh, representing largely Power 5 football interests. So I want to talk a little bit about the uh, president's true authorities and responsibilities in this dysfunctional governance model. I I did an episode early on in the podcast. It was episode five. I titled it after that brand quote. It was called the NCAA's Omnipotent Czar. And I went into the NCAA rule book to try to figure out exactly what it was that the NCAA president did. What was the language that gave some insight into what the NCAA president could do or couldn't do. And contrary to those statements from Emmert and Brand, the NCAA president, in fact, has had and currently has, even after this constitutional makeover, substantial authorities and very powerful authorities that don't get any attention. And I, I went to the bowels of the NCAA Division One manual, the 451-page manual, to figure out exactly where the NCAA president fit in. Because under the old constitution, the uh, duties of the NCAA president were not spelled out. So we had the duties of all the governing boards, but we didn't have anything about the NCAA president except that the NCAA president was employed by the Board of Governors. And one of the biggest myths in the regulation of college sports is that the NCAA president has a direct relationship and an accountability relationship to the membership itself. Mark Emmert and Miles Brand were hired by the NCAA Board of Governors, and they reported only to the NCAA Board of Governors. And The NCAA Board of Governors hired Mark Emmert. They control the terms of his contract, and only they can fire Mark Emmert. And so Mark Emmert is in this star chamber cocoon with the NCAA Board of Governors. And it is those kinds of relationships that I think have led to some of the corruptions at the governance level. And there is zero accountability to the membership. Zero. But in that old constitution and in the Division I uh, manual, you have to go to the very back of the executive regulations to figure out what the NCAA president can actually do. And the NCAA president has two really important powers and authorities. The first power and authority goes to the sale of NCAA intellectual property. The NCAA president and only the NCAA president has the authority to enter into contracts with broadcast media outlets like CBS and Turner and to license all of the NCAA trademarks and logos and all of the intellectual property and enter into any kind of of contract that relates to the NCAA's property. And again, that does not include any 
big-time football properties because they operate as an entirely independent financial product because of Board of Regents. This is all NCAA property. And that is a very powerful authority. And the NCAA president is the uh, point person for all of that. The other important power and authority that gets virtually no attention is that the NCAA president and only the NCAA president has the authority to hire non-administrative personnel. And non-administrative personnel mean non-NCAA employees, like third-party contractors and experts and service providers, like lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations firms. The NCAA president has that exclusive authority. And that is a very important power, particularly given what has happened over the last three years now, because as I have said in prior episodes, and I truly believe this to be the case, it's lawyers and lobbyists and public relations people who are actually running college sports right now. And in any discussion about the future of college sports now at the voluntary regulatory level, you won't get a paragraph into any tough question on what the next step is going to be without bumping into a comment that says, well, we have all this besieging and frivolous litigation and we have all these bills in Congress and we have these state legislatures. We have to deal with those threats. So that's the beginning, the middle, and the end of how the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries view their regulatory authority going going forward. And that's the way they viewed it since 2019 when they started this campaign in the Senate, which means that all of these decisions are being made and dictated, at the very least influenced, by lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations people. And Mark Emmert and Mark Emmert alone was hiring these people in some of the most important junctures in the history of college sports. And alongside of him was Donald Remy. And because Emmert, and I think with Remy's assistance, were hiring these people, the relationship ran through Emmert and Remy. And that's a really unhealthy dynamic. And yeah, the Board of Governors probably has input there, and they have the authority to initiate and settle litigation. So obviously, they should be part of the discussions, but they didn't have frontline responsibility for actually hiring the outside experts. Who knows how that really worked? But in the NCAA Division I manual, that is the exclusive authority of the NCAA president. And I think on the backside of this constitutional makeover, you saw a couple of interesting things. One is that this first authority to sell NCAA property, intellectual property, and most particularly the broadcast media rights to March Madness, that resides solely with the NCAA president, but it's been brought out of the bowels of the Division I manual and put into the new constitution as a constitutional mandate. And I think part of the propagandization of this tournament is by the NCAA is to make it look like uh, that this is such an important thing in, in college sports, and it is a way to try to make the case for the NCAA's relevance. And remember, Bob Gates, who chaired this constitutional makeover at the very beginning of the process, said that the NCAA was in a battle for relevance. And one way to do that is to focus on these national championships. And that is now a constitutional mandate. And then with respect to the second power that goes to hiring the lawyers, the lobbyists, and the public relations people, I think you had some curtailment of that because I believe there were people in system 
system. And I think Greg Sankey was one of them. It felt like the Board of Governors was being ambushed by things that had been predetermined by external lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations people through Emmert and Remy. And they complained uh, about that. And one of the things that was included in this new constitution is that the uh, governing boards, and particularly the Board of Governors, get agendas, meeting agendas sufficiently in, in advance so that they know what the hell's happening. If, if you have to include that in your constitution, you've got a big problem. But the NCAA uh, president still has the frontline authority for managing those relationships. With the new board of governors, I think it's less of an issue because this new board of governors is going to have a conference commissioner on it. It's going to have athletics directors and the number of university presidents will go from 16 down to at most three. So you have a much different governing body at the association-wide level. And of course, the association's powers have been really trimmed down. So their jurisdiction isn't as important as it was under the old constitution. But you still have the NCAA president with substantial and meaningful powers and authorities that are in direct conflict with the way that Mark Emmert portrays his position as NCAA president. And then there are a couple of things I want to talk about. I think these would fall into the jetsam category. I just tossing stuff overboard that you don't want or that you think will just make it easier to navigate the waters. So I want to hit those real quick. One was the fact that Kansas won this national championship while it is under investigation by the NCAA. And that case is in the IARP, the Independent Accountability Resolution Process, this new process that was the pro- was the product of the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations for high stakes cases. And the commission made quite clear that there were all kinds of problems with the old infractions and enforcement system that ran through the NCAA National Office Enforcement Staff, then through NCAA insiders at the adjudication level. That problem has been on the table for decades, and and the Commission on College Basketball finally issued some recommendations to solve it. But it wanted to get the high-stakes cases out of the hands of these built-in conflicts of, of interest and the corruption at the NCAA National Office. And that new system has become the whipping boy of Greg Sankey, and now Mark Emmert is singing that song as he did in that press conference last week. And I've talked a lot about the the infractions and enforcement process. I did those episodes on the NC State case. And then I think it was episode 80 where I talked about the Auburn case. But we, we have two decisions that I think are now relevant precedent. And these two decisions came out in December of 2021. So on December 10th, you had the Auburn decision that ran through the old system, the infractions and enforcement process. And then 10 days later, on December 20th of 2021, We had the NC State case, which ran through the new system. It was the very first case that ran through the new system. And they involved different fact patterns. And I talked quite a bit about those in that episode 80. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But one of the important things here is going to be how the IARP panel that actually conducts the hearing and then issues the final opinion how it is going to deal with the issue of head coach responsibility. And of course, in that Auburn case, remember, Bruce Pearl, who was found guilty of a level one violation, that's the highest uh, level of violations, that's a, a hanging offense, according to the NCAA, that always comes with severe penalties. And uh, Pearl skated on those. It, it was just a stunning opinion and really difficult to defend. 
But you know, I think what's different about this Kansas case is that when you look at the facts, and I'm going to talk about this in a separate episode, I'm going to do an entire episode on this Kansas case and do a compare and contrast and what I think the issues are, are going to be for this panel. But Self, as the head coach, is a little bit closer to some of the the corruptions in the system because of some communications he had with a, an Adidas consultant. And uh, so he's actually closer to ground zero of that than either Mark Gottfried was, who was the head coach at NC State, or Bruce Pearl was, who was the head coach at Auburn. And, and they had assistant coaches who were doing the bad stuff. And there wasn't any evidence that tied that, that up to the head coach or any evidence that the head coach, either of those head coaches actually knew what was going on. I don't think that's true with Bill Self. So it's going to pose some interesting problems for that case on both sides of the fence, not just for Self in Kansas, but also for the NCAA, because they've just been propagandizing the ever-living heck out of this Final Four for its own commercial interests and its uh, attempt to stay relevant in the college sports marketplace. And I don't see them coming in and getting rid of Bill Self or trying to strip Kansas of, of a national championship. They just can't do that. And then there are some other circumstances there that are very interesting that tie back into some of the corruptions and the incestuous relationships in big-time college sports. And Kansas has had a prominent seat at the table in the NCAA Power Five's quest to get these extraordinary federal protections and immunities in Congress. And I'm going to talk about that as well. So we'll see what's going to happen here. And then the second thing, and kind of out of nowhere thing that happened, and this was after the Final Four, is that uh, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby announced that he was retiring. He's going to stay on until they find a replacement. And that was an interesting decision. Not really a, the the decision itself, but Bowlesby's, I think, around 70, and the conference commissioners who retired a couple of years ago were in that same age range. You had Jim Delaney in the Big Ten and John Swafford at the ACC. They had been there forever. And they were getting on up there, I think, to a, a retirement age. So from that standpoint, it, it is a logical transition point. But the justification that Bowlesby offered was a head scratcher to me. And he couched it in terms of really not wanting to deal with all the mess that's going on in college sports right now. And you know, I think Bowlesby's announcement has been met with um, a mixed reaction. You've had some responses that are more charitable than others, but I, I saw a, an article by Dennis Dodd, who writes for CBS, and he's a good writer. He gets some good stuff, but I, I, as I've said in prior episodes, I think he usually lands on the side of uh, institutional interest when push comes to shove. And of course, he, he's with CBS, and they're joined at the hip with the NCAA financially. But uh, Dodd wrote a kind of a nice going away article that portrayed Bowlesby as the tired but noble warrior who's just exhausted from defending his hill. And I guess that's one way to look at it. And uh, Dodd talks about Bowlesby as a family man and a grandfather and the uh, ways that uh, Bowlesby had been accessible to Dodd. And, and uh, that was a very nice article. But uh, Bowlesby is not just a grandfather. He's a very wealthy 
grandfather. And I think most people don't know how much money these conference commissioners make. And so I went back to the Big 12's Form 990 tax returns, which are the, the nonprofit tax disclosures that entities, nonprofit entities have to file. And the Big 12 conference is a separate legal entity from the NCAA, from any individual member institution. I, and I talked about that in my episode six on uh, Big 10 secrets. And that's an important component of the business model because these conference entities are technically private and not subject to public records requests or any other public disclosures except for this tax tax return. But on the tax return, they have to list their highly compensated employees. And these conference entities are run by the university presidents and chancellors of the member institutions that make up the conference. So you have all, all those individuals listed as well. And Bob Bowlesby, I think he was hired in 2012. And so the first tax return that reflected his income was in 2013. And if he leaves in 2020. Two, that'll be 10 years. And I have tax returns from 2013 to 2020 that show Bob Bowlesby's income. And I'm assuming for 2021 and 2022, he's making at least as much as he made in 2020. But when you look at those numbers, they are just staggering. And over that 10-year period, Bob Bowlesby will have made $35 million. And when you look at the increase in his salary from his first year to his last year, that is just as breathtaking. So in 2013, he made $1.2 million, assuming that in his last year, he's making at, at the same amount. I'm just going to use the same amount. He might be making more, who knows, that he made in 2020. That's $4.5 million, rounding up. So that increase over 10 years is a 275% increase in his salary. That is a lot of money. And it doesn't include any money that might come in uh, through his service as the this new interim director. And it all also does not include any potential golden parachutes. And these conference commissioners, who are really the oligarchs of the big-time college sports economy, and there are only five of them, they have done quite well financially. When Jim Delaney retired, and I guess it was 2020, and then Kevin Warren took over for him in the Big Ten, Delaney got a $20 million golden parachute. I don't, I'm not sure about Swafford, and he wasn't making quite as much money as Delaney. And of course, we don't see these contracts because they run through the conference entity. So we don't know what the financial terms are. All we get are these snapshots every year through this 990 return that tell us how, how much was paid in that year. And again, I think that's just one of the hidden corruptions in this whole business model is that you have these conference commissioners just making piles and piles of money. And we really don't know exactly what their job description is. We don't know what their contracts look like. And we don't know the extent to which they're really being held accountable by the university presidents and chancellors who are supposed to oversee them and who set their salary. So the other thing that's interesting about these Form 990s is that when you look at what Bowlesby's been making and you compare it to the university presidents and chancellors, it's just embarrassing almost. Bowlesby's making far more than the highest paid university president. And when if you were to average the salaries of all of the Big 12 presidents, I think you would see that Bowlesby's making on the order of four times more than that average. What does that tell you about presidential leadership and control over intercollegiate athletics? Because under Bob Bowlesby's watch and under John Swafford and Jim Delaney's watch and Larry Scott's watch and Greg Sankey's 
Watch. The value of the product has grown exponentially, yet the fundamental relationship between the laborers and the beneficiaries of the labor have not. And there is zero indication that the new kids on the block in the conference commissioner positions see the world any differently. And why would they when they are making the same obscene salaries that their predecessors did? So now let's turn to some of the flotsam. And again, that is the post-shipwreck debris that is still legally owned by the owner of the ship. And in the NCAA shipwreck, the most valuable flotsam is the treasure chest. There is a $1.1 billion treasure chest floating in the ocean, and the NCAA and all of its in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are pulling that damn thing to the shore, and they will do everything in their power to their dying breath to preserve it. Because without that treasure chest, the entire NCAA collapses. It's gone. It's done. And they preserved it, temporarily at least, through this constitutional makeover. And the Power Five getting everything that they wanted to essentially control the regulation of college sports under the NCAA umbrella. And they left the NCAA with the consolation prize it's had since 1984, post-Board of Regents. And that is the Division I men's basketball tournament known as March Madness. And if that is at risk in any way, shape, or form, the NCAA is done. It's over. And the NCAA then is nothing more than a glorified high school uh, state athletic association, which in my judgment is precisely what it should be. It shouldn't be in the multi-billion dollar big business of the sports entertainment industrial complex, but that's what the NCAA is now. And one of the themes of my podcast has been that the product of high-level Division One men's basketball has a unique position in the business model because it solely props up and supports the NCAA bureaucracy and the association-wide welfare system. Big-time football doesn't contribute a penny to that. So basketball has unique and very important interests in this whole shooting match. And I think since 1984, as the football product has exploded and the basketball product has been marketed like hell to serve the NCAA national office's interests and, and its corrupt business model and administrative model, that the basketball interests just, I think, act as if they're resigned to their fate and they'll take the whatever the NCAA decides to give them after they take their hundreds of millions of dollars and all the downstream welfare checks to divisions two and three and all these championships, all the things I've discussed. And I can't remember when this was. It was, I don't know, it feels like it was about a year ago. I'll have to go back and check. But there was some discussion about the quality of the NCAA tournament. Maybe it was in connection with last year's tournament. But uh, West Virginia head men's basketball coach Bob Huggins made a comment that suggested that maybe college basketball should be as independent as college football. And I don't know how well-versed Huggins is in the business model or the history of college sports and the post-Board of Regents era. But I think intuitively, if you're a head basketball coach at a Power 5 school and you're looking at this 
football product that plays by its own rules yet gets all the benefit of NCAA membership, you're saying, why the hell can't we have that? And that's a good question. Huggins was roundly criticized. He was mocked for saying that. I read that and I thought, wow, Huggy Bear's got a, he's got a pretty good point here. And the NCAA's control over the big time men's basketball marketplace, the postseason marketplace, is just as strong and I believe just as anti-competitive as the control that it had over big-time college football prior to 1984. And the way that the NCAA has preserved that market dominance with postseason big-time men's basketball is through eliminating competition, which it did in that purchase of the NIT, which was the product of a settlement in an antitrust suit brought by the NIT, and then through these absurd long-term contracts that extend 10, 15 years into the future that preserve the NCAA administrative state. So the NCAA has cornered the market on big-time college basketball. And people who see that market the way that Bob Huggins does have no way to respond to it right now. And so now I want to transition to how important this tournament is to the NCAA and the ways in which it has framed the values of the tournament and how it has protected its commercial interest in its contracts with third parties. I want to start with some basics, some fundamentals that have applied to this tournament since its modern iteration through this CBS Turner contract. And then I want to talk about how within that framework, we had uh, Final Four propaganda on steroids. And I've talked about this a bit before, but the way that these games are staged from the Disney-like scenes and settings and framing and production to the way that the games are analyzed by the quote-unquote analysts, you are really getting a marketing product. And this the power of this product comes in large part because it is live content. There's very little live TV programming left in the marketplace. Most of it is sports content and sports programming, and that is gold. And you can take that reality TV, the true reality TV that we are all instinctively drawn to by human nature, and then you package around that all of the Disney-like props and false narratives and corporate lies. It is just an irresistible product. So you have that with sports writ large, all the live programming. With this particular tournament, you have it on steroids. And one of the ways that the NCAA protects its brand, protects its reputation, protects its image, is by requiring anyone who does business with the NCAA to agree, to contractually agree to promote the NCAA the way the NCAA wants to be promote it. And you can say, well, sure, that's what happens in America. If you have a valuable product and then you sell it to a third party, but you want to protect your brand, you uh, do that through contract. Yeah. In a commercial transaction. <laughs> the NCAA is an education nonprofit, but the way that they protect their intellectual property and their brand is the, the same way that Google or Amazon or Walmart protect 
their brands because this is a commercial venture. It is not an educational venture. And please forgive my references to Disney. I know that CBS and, and Turner are not Disney and ESPN doesn't own the contract rights, but CBS and Turner use the same tactics. It's the same playbook. And we really don't have access to the contracts between the NCAA and CBS Turner and all of the various licensees of the March Madness product. Some of those agreements were produced through discovery in O'Bannon and in Austin, but they were heavily redacted. The version of those contracts that are in the electronic vault that are accessible to the public have virtually no meaning. But what we do know is that the NCAA has a set of principles, and they're called Advertising and Promotional Guidelines. And the most recent one that I could find were those that were in effect as of September of 2019. So let's do a quick tour through these principles that apply to all of the broadcast media outlets and all of the advertisers that those uh, media outlets bring on board for the advertising during the March Madness Tournament. So the introduction says the NCAA's advertising and promotional standards are designed to encourage those advertisements and advertisers that support the NCAA's ideals and exclude, and exclude is underlined, those advertisements and advertisers and others who wish to associate with the NCAA's activities that do not appear to be in the best interests of higher education and student-athletes. So they throw in higher education and student-athletes. I'm going to come back to that when I talk about the branding around this particular Final Four and the absence of any interests that relate to higher education and student athletes in the educational context. And these guidelines go on to say, advertisements, advertisers, and others associated with NCAA events should be generally supportive of the NCAA's values and attributes and or not be in conflict with the NCAA's mission and fundamental principles. In formulating these advertising and promotional standards, the NCAA reviewed the broadcast practices and standard documents of its primary television partners, i.e. the CBS Television Network, Advertising Guidelines, and the ESPN Domestic Commercial Guidelines. In some cases, the NCAA adopted specific standards from these guidelines. Overall, the NCAA recognizes that these network guidelines help to maintain and assure a standard of appropriate advertising on NCAA championship telecasts. The NCAA will work with each of its business partners, including CBS, Turner, ESPN, in reviewing in advance advertisements or other questionable associations with the NCAA prior to the NCAA rendering a decision as to how those standards should apply in any given situation. The NCAA reserves the right to exercise flexibility as circumstances warrant. So then there's a heading titled principles. And it says, the NCAA strives to be associated with entities and messages that, one, promote the NCAA's attributes, learning, balance, character, spirit, passion, community, and fair play. Two, champion the student-athlete, and student is in full caps, reflecting the integration and balance that student-athletes achieve every day between academics and athletics. Three, support diversity, gender equity, non-discrimination, physical fitness, and all that stuff. That's the usual throw-in. Four, enhance the overall value of higher 
education. Five, project and enhance a consistent brand image and consistent public relations message for the NCAA. And uh, I'm going to come back to a couple of those in a little bit. And then it goes on to say, understanding the realities and challenges that commercial entities face in attempting to reach these objectives, the NCAA believes at a minimum, and they put at a minimum in bold, that advertisements, advertisers, and others who wish to be associated with the NCAA events should not, and they put should not in bold. So these are the non-negotiable items here in terms of using the NCAA brand and promoting its interests. And they, they are three. There are three of them. First, they should not cause harm to student-athlete health, safety, and welfare. Number two, they should not bring discredit to the purposes, values, or principles of the NCAA. And three, they should not negatively impact the best interests of intercollegiate athletics or higher education. So that second one is so important. They should not bring discredit to the purposes, values, or principles of the NCAA, which means that anybody associated with the NCAA, using the NCAA intellectual property, that ha or people that have the broadcast media rights or are licensees for any trademarks or logos, they have to pump the NCAA's propaganda. That is a condition of doing business with the NCAA, and under no circumstances can anyone associated with the NCAA product voice a word of criticism of the NCAA. And then the NCAA goes through a list of specific examples, and they are put into to two categories, permissible or, or impermissible. And let's say they have health-related products. That's pretty self-explanatory. And then individuals, agencies, and organizations. And basically, you want to stay away from the sin products, tobacco, alcohol, gambling, sports books, and the like are also on the list. They have a, a capital I, a bold I, next to them, impermissible, even though the NCAA in 2018, did a long-term contract that we, we don't know how much it's worth, but they did a long-term term contract with Genius Sports, which is in the gambling business. And that contract is a direct violation of the NCAA's own statement on gambling. And then also impermissible are the advocacy of viewpoints on controversial issues of public importance like religious beliefs or political beliefs. Now, now think about that for a second. The NCAA is an association of institutions of higher education, where a central purpose is the acquisition and analysis of knowledge and critical thinking and talking about issues of public importance, particularly the controversial issues of public importance. But there will be no controversy associated with the NCAA brand. We are going to be in Pleasantville. We are going to be in the Disney theme park. And it's a Pleasantville and a theme park that are designed by the NCAA to promote the NCAA's public image and to protect its pocketbook. And then they go through some of the no-brainers. Let's see. Weapons, violence, profanity, alcohol, and tobacco. And then they throw in a line about gambling. And then I think the next section is really my favorite. And it's, I think it's titled Legal Technical. So they have a list of things that are impermissible. All of these are impermissible. One, false, and they have false in bold, false unsubstantiated or unwarranted claims for any product or service or any unauthenticated testimonials. <laughs> that describes 
the NCAA. They are in the business of false, unsubstantiated, and unwarranted claims made by people who are providing unauthenticated testimonials on the virtues of amateurism and the collegiate model and the student athlete and the the narratives that the NCAA paints and hides behind to protect its commercial interests. Next, ambiguous, misleading, or deceptive statements. The entire production is deceptive because it's specifically designed to mask the reality of the greed of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who simply can't get enough money in their coffers. And that's how the NCAA has been marketing and, and promoting and selling this Division One men's basketball product for 40 years. When you read these, you just ask yourself, where the hell are the regulators? Where's the Federal Trade Commission? These lies, the lies that the NCAA has been telling publicly and that they run through these staged promotional activities and their tournaments and all their propaganda. Where is the FTC on this? And where's that fine line between puffing up your brand and outright lying about it? And that's a line that the bigs have always walked, big tobacco, uh, big pharma, uh, big gambling. And big amateurism. But the FTC has never really been brought in to take a look at the claims that the NCAA makes publicly and emphatically and then markets and brands with impunity. Wouldn't that be an interesting administrative agency inquiry? Okay, let's see what else is on the I list, the impermissible list. And we have protection of the marks and infringements and, and all that stuff. And then they have a bullet point, And this is just, this is perfect. Attacks or other disparagement and they put disparagements in bold of the NCAA or its members. You are not allowed to speak ill of the NCAA in any way, shape, or form, or you are violating your contract with the National Collegiate Athletics Association. And then this document closes out with something that I think is really important, and it goes back to this fundamental question of the role of the NCAA president, and the title of this section is Process, and it says, the NCAA president shall have the authority to rule in cases where doubt exists concerning acceptable advertisers and or advertisements associated with NCAA championships and other NCAA-related activities. The NCAA staff will carry out the president's authority over these standards on a day-to-day basis. And then it says the vice president of communications as well as in-house counsel shall be consulted as necessary before communicating final decisions. And then there's a, a puff paragraph at the end. But what does that say? The, the membership doesn't decide. The NCAA president decides. And as I've discussed, the NCAA president doesn't report to the membership. He's not hired by the NCAA membership. He's not supervised by the NCAA membership. He's not fired by the NCAA membership. He is employed exclusively by the NCAA Board of Governors and reports to the Board of Governors and no one else, no other person or entity. So he is doing the bidding of the Board of Governors and the NCAA National Office's commercial interest. That's his job. And he has that authority. So when Mark Emmert and Miles Brand say, oh, we're not the omnipotent czar. Don't look at us. Look at the members. No, that's not the way it works. You are the omnipotent czar, Mark Emmert. When it comes to negotiating and uh, selling the NCAA's intellectual property. You alone have that authority, that privilege, and that responsibility. And it's the NCAA president that is the face of these 
commercial deals, these commercial transactions, and the sale of NCAA intellectual property, including broadcast uh, media rights. So the NCAA president wields extraordinary power in this business model. And uh, I, just, I just want to talk for a second about how this particular Final Four was propagandized. And again, we heard this in Mark Emmert's presser on March 31st when he was saying, this is just the most important thing. We have to protect this asset. This is the crown jewel of college sports. And well, it certainly is to the NCAA because it's the NCAA sole source of revenue. But it's been propagandized and it, it just went on steroids in this final four. And you had Greg Sankey making comments like that. You had Dan Gabbett, who was at that uh, March 31st press conference making that argument. That was the narrative. And then you had that reinforced by the NCAA's mouthpieces sitting in the studios during the games, in the heat of the game. And this tribute, this homage to the Final Four as a national treasure that occurred after the Duke Carolina game on Saturday, it was so obvious that they were pumping the Final Four as the the crown jewel of not just the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament, but of all of college sports. And it sounded to me like this was a clearly scripted point of emphasis. And these people are not there to criticize the game. That's not their job. And they are contractually prohibited from speaking on those terms. So these people are there to market the game, the broader game of basketball. They're there to market the NCAA's interest in that commercial market. And they are there to enhance the commercial value of the product. That's what they get paid to do. And again, the fact that this kind of promotion occurs in the context of live TV gives it an authenticity that is only available in live broadcast. If you take the live broadcast out of this, you've got an infomercial for the NCAA and its interests, essentially. And now I want to talk just a little bit about some of the things that you didn't hear during this Final Four weekend. And again, I made a transcript of this presser that Emmert and Dan Gavitt gave on March 31st, guess what word does not appear anywhere in that transcript from Mark Emmert or Dan Gavitt? Education. We heard nothing about education. I didn't watch all uh, every game in the NCAA tournament. I watched, I think, all the Elite Eight games, the Final Four and the National Championship game. I don't recall any of the mouthpieces for this product speak in terms of education. Talk about the educational value of participating in college sports. And that's a tough thing to talk about when these kids are missing a month of school at post-regular uh, season. They're missing basically a month of school if you make it to the Final Four. They're not real students. They are performers generating billions of dollars in value out of this spectacle. So how can you talk about education? You can't. And that's a dead language now. And that ties into an observation I've made throughout this podcast. And that is that we have stopped speaking the language of the integrity of higher education and the integrity of the academic mission of individual institutions. We're talking about the integrity of college sports. And what that has come down to now in 2022 is a congressional bailout for the big time, powerful commercial interest. 
interests in college sports, namely the Power Five. That is the integrity of college sports right now, not compensating these athletes fairly, not protecting their health, safety, and welfare, not making sure that they have a, a meaningful educational experience. It is preserving the gravy train for the big-time football interests and then the NCAA's consolation gravy train in the March Madness tournament. That's it. And when you look at Gavitt's comments, it's all about, quote-unquote, fan engagement. What does that mean? That means trying to make viewers permanent fans. Who is engaged? And I talked about that in the context of sports gambling. That's a fundamental philosophy in the sports gambling industry, that if you can get people hooked on gambling, then they will, quote unquote, engage and become fans. And you have some built-in consumer loyalty, and that makes your product more valuable to advertisers and to people purchasing your product or services. This is all about the money. So I just want to go through uh, a few of the things that, that Gavitt said when he had the microphone at the beginning of this presser last week. He says, it's just been an incredible tournament and some numbers back that up. Attendance has been incredible. And uh, he talks about the regional venues. They had uh, 17,000 plus in San Antonio and, and a similar number in San Francisco, 20,000 plus in Philadelphia and in Chicago, and 71,000 people expected for the final four. And those are just really important statistics to Dan Gavitt and to the NCAA. And he says, we've had incredible engagement as well, even outside of attendance. And he brings in attendance at the women's tournament in the early rounds as record setting. And then he talks about the social channels, March Madness, uh, the men's championship, and uh, describes this tournament as the most engaged ever. It talks about March Madness Live, which is a platform for delivering uh, March Madness content, and that it surpassed the old baseline in 2019. And then he talks about unique users, 11.4 million unique users of March Madness Live, and then looking at TV ratings. And he talks about the 3 million viewers across all games heading into the Final Four, which is up from the, the prior year and about the same as it was in 2019. 19, but it, it is up 7% from 2018. So he says, really incredible engagement. Not surprising, I guess, given the incredible games we've seen and the competition. And then he talks about how excited everybody is for this historic Final Four. In Gavitt's description of the tournament and what it means this year, you would think that you were hearing from a, a CBS or Turner or ESPN or Disney executive, not an employee of the NCAA, which is an education nonprofit. Dan Gavitt's paid, uh, what, what is it, $600,000 a year, something in that neighborhood, by the NCAA, funded exclusively from revenues from this tournament. And he can only think about fan engagement, dollars and cents. And then you know, I guess I want to close this out by talking about the influence of money in a different context. I talked about this a little bit in my uh, episode on the value of these athletes to the overall business model in big time college sports and in particular to the survival of the NCAA administrative state. And I looked at the contracts of the athletics directors and the head coaches in the final four. And really, I only had two, Kansas and UNC, because they're public institutions. Duke and Villanova don't have to provide any information so that those contracts aren't a matter of public record. 
But there were performance bonuses in both of those contracts, the AD and the coaching contracts, that allow these people to make money directly from the performance of their teams. And that is a philosophy of rewarding the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries based on winning and nothing else. And that is built into the distribution formula. And so there were some people making some noise that maybe the women should have that same kind of formula. They don't have it now. But in any iteration for any group of stakeholders, the formula is based on winning, winning alone. And is that the yardstick that we want to use to promote values in an enterprise that's supposed to be aligned with the values of higher education and educational values and the mission of nonprofit entities that hang their hat on the nonprofit peg of education? Is that what we really want? And do we want to have these contracts that primarily reward the athletics directors and the coaches based on the number of games their teams win. And there are also education incentives built in. And I guess I want to throw in uh, an article that I read yesterday, and I frequently use articles to critique. This one I want to praise because it hit on an important issue, and this was by Dan Murphy of ESPN. He was talking about the Austin education benefits, these benefits that were the subject of seven years of antitrust litigation and ultimately wound up in the U.S. Supreme Court. But as I have discussed many times in this podcast, those benefits were very, very modest and they were purely permissive. So schools aren't required to offer them. They can do that at their discretion. And so ESPN was trying to get a handle on how many schools were actually offering these benefits and the way that the benefits were calculated under Judge Wilkins injunction order. Basically, the schools could give the athletes up to about $6,000 in academic performance money if they choose to. And they can use their own whatever criteria they want to determine for who might be eligible for that. But ESPN served public records requests and then talked to a lot of schools and there are 130 FBS schools. So these are the schools in the top division, the top uh, football subdivision, the bowl subdivision, the, the heavy hitters in college sports, and it, it includes all the Power Five schools. There were only, I guess, 101 schools that responded. Of course, the private schools didn't have to respond, so we don't really have a, a complete picture. But of the 101 schools that responded to public records requests or to interview requests, only 22 of those schools are offering any type of education benefit under the Austin ruling. And some schools are offering less than the $6,000. And some schools said, oh yeah, we plan to do it in the future. Who knows? Who knows? But by and large, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are saying no to education benefits, at least right now. And one of the things that Murphy pointed out, and this is so important, is that you look at the contracts of some of these high-powered coaches. He talked about the Nick Saban contract. And under Nick Saban's contract, he can get up to $100,000 in bonuses for the academic success success of his players. And athletics directors can get the same kind of money based on the academic performances of all of the teams at that institution. And it's ridiculous on its face that those people can claim credit for the academic success of these athletes. But more important than that, they're okay with educational bonuses when it goes into the pockets of the athletics directors and these imperial head coaches. But when it goes into the pockets of the athletes, they close, the, they close their wallet and they put it back in their pocket and say, uh-uh, no, you're not getting it. We're going to give it to your head coach. I mean, the absurdity of that. But these incentive bonuses are not 
designed to incentivize the true values of higher education or any reasonable construction of an emphasis on education and educational integrity. They are designed to promote winning at all costs. And then when there is academic achievement that happens to coincide with that, then the money goes to the people who are already getting paid millions and millions of dollars, not to the people who actually provide the labor. And that is a disgrace. It is a disgrace for higher education and for the big time college sports marketplace writ large. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.